Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we have Daniel Murray, founder at the Marketing Millennials and head of media strategy at Workweek. Daniel, how are you doing? Great, great. Thanks for having me on. Daniel, I know a lot about your pod. I'm so excited about this. This is almost like a crossover event, like when Spider-Man and the Avengers come together <laughs> in a movie. We've got a lot to talk about, but I'm just, I'm thrilled to have you on. I appreciate you making the time. Of course. I'm happy to dive into whatever we want to talk about today. Well, I want to learn about you first, right? So I want to start here. Most of the people I know in marketing, they swear by your podcast and your LinkedIn posts. So I'm just really interested because for people who are not as familiar with the pod, tell us a little bit about marketing millennials. And then in particular, what do you kind of see as the objective of the pod? What are you trying to convey to your listeners? When you start off in your marketing career, it's hard to learn marketing from people. Marketing is very specialized role. So it was hard coming into marketing ops and not having someone ahead of you in marketing ops or to learn from. So I wanted to create a place where marketers from any walk from beginning to middle or higher in their career could learn different types of marketing because I think every marketer still should learn the top of the T of the T-shaped market everybody talks about. So I like to call marketing millennials like the top of the T get a little bit of each type of marketing, learn from the best and the bestness of those people. And it's also a place for me to hype up other marketers. I love bringing up other marketers around me. The marketing millennials isn't about me. It's about the cool marketers out there that are teaching great things to other marketers. I really love that. I love the community building aspect of that too. And I think what's interesting for marketing I think I'm a little bit older than you. I'm just outside of being a millennial. And so when I grew up, marketing was something much more traditional. And now marketing analytics has really proliferated everything marketing, whether it be cost of acquisition of a customer, whether it be lifetime value of a customer. How do you see kind of traditional marketing and marketing analytics ebbing and flowing? Do you lean one way or another, or do you think you need both to be successful? Or what's your kind of overall thoughts about kind of analytics and how that's become so predominant in this space over the last decade? I think there was a time where you can win with analytics. I think when Facebook first came out and all these digital marketing first came out, but now like it's become table stakes to have analytics. So what wins now is what's won forever in marketing is learning the foundations of marketing, which is understanding your customer, understanding psychology, understanding copywriting, understanding what moves a customer or a buyer. I think creativity, I think what's happening is now we're in an age where, oh, there's an over-reliance of data to make decisions instead of using what made marketing great in the beginning, which is creativity, intuition, understanding customers. I think we lean too much on making decisions. The way I see data is data is a compass that's supposed to guide you in a certain direction and give you like objectively, let's go north, but you also need to rely on your experience as a marketer, your creativity as a marketer to find 
the best path. Like sometimes you can go north with data and then there's a boulder in the road, but the compass is not going to tell you that there was a boulder in the road. Like now what I do when there's a boulder in the road, that's what I see with data. And also data is also all in the past. So data predicts some past results to future results. So if you use data solely, like you're not ever going to come up with something creative or intuitive. So I think you need a balance using data to inform decisions, but not make decisions for you. Yeah, I love that. I know we're going to talk a little bit about your sports background in a little bit. I'm a big sports fan. That makes me think about sports too. There's like this big chasm between the people that are very analytically focused versus the eye test. And if you just rely on the analytics for observing a player or a team and their future success, you're missing out on a lot of the things that you catch from the eye test. What I think I'm hearing you saying is instead of being solely data-driven, data influence, leverage data as a tool but it can't be your only tool. Otherwise you're going to make mistakes and you're going to really lose out on the side of the customer, which at the end of the day is the core of marketing, right? And I also think it slows you down. One of the things that group makes, at least like in startup land, great is speed. And sometimes people wait to make decisions with data and then the decision not always right when it comes to the data. I think you need some data points to say objectively we're going in the right direction, but it also a lot of marketers lean on it so much that it makes deters them from making a great decision. 100%. Totally agree with you. And another trend that I've noticed in marketing recently is the personal branding or the individual branding versus the branding of an overall organization and company. In fact, a lot of the people I follow, their companies don't have as much following as they do. And that's because I think the individual brand is becoming so much more important. And at the end of the day, I work with a lot of executives because most of them don't have the time to be able to put out their individual and personalized brand, even if they want to, because it's really important in terms of being able to get speaking engagements, being able to you know, be seen as a thought leader, being able to drive people to you and want to work for you. You built an incredible following organically. And so I know there's people that listen to this that are trying to build their own personal brand. Do you have any core principles that have kind of guided you or that you think is really important for somebody that wants to maybe build their brand online? Yeah, I think there's a couple, and we can also go back to sports when it comes down to this too, but I think one is you have to have a core belief that you're standing on when you're building a personal brand. You have to have a hill you would die on or an inevitable truth that you should go after. You also should build for who you want to be known for in the future, not for your current role you're in. So like if you want to be known as the best marketing operations person or the best whatever, build for that, don't build because you're in a certain industry or because then you get lost. And then I think the simplest things that work when it comes to personal branding is like consistency and patience outlast everybody. I think why I've won a lot on social is I just lasted longer than 99% of the people out there. And I was willing to show up every day. And I think that just came from my sports background. I think every post I see is a rep. You get a rep and you get a rep in you practicing for the end game. So it's every time you're posting is just practice, practice. And I think people forget that you don't have to have home run swings all the time. You just need to swing. And I think yeah. a lot of people just don't swing. Half a life is showing up. So if you can just be, you know, motivation pales in comparison to discipline, in my opinion, right? So if you're able to show up day in and day out, it doesn't matter if you had the most engaged post of all time, one day or another, it's just that keeps showing up organically going to grow things. I also think there's a thing of like, at the beginning, quantity leads to quality. You have to do things to be able to become good at things. So your posts are going to suck at the beginning. 
your content is going to suck at the beginning. Your messaging might be off at the beginning, but the best feedback out there is the audience. It's not yourself. So let your audience decide if it sucks or not. Don't let yourself decide if it sucks or not. And also the one thing I do believe is that you need to go quick to get those quick feedback so you can grow faster. So like if you post a lot and a lot, you start seeing feedback come in relatively faster than if you post once every week or once every month or once every whatever or inconsistently. Yeah. It's a total iteration. And if you're learning along the way, you're going to get better and better over time. And that's really everything in life, right? Mm -hmm. That could be football, that could be art, that could be cooking, it could be anything. So I think that's really salient advice. I could talk marketing with you all day. I'm going to continue that because I'm getting a master's in marketing right now. So I want to ask, I have this belief. So our company does a lot in the all things hiring space. We're all about creating great candidate experience, creating more certainty in hiring, helping our customers with that, helping our candidates with that. And so one of the core beliefs I've had for a while is that I've always felt like recruitment should be sitting in marketing versus human resources. And here's why. I think that at a lot of companies, not all companies, but I think at a lot of companies, human resources is seen as a governance and compliance function, right? A lot of times whenever you hear from HR, it's almost like hearing from the principal in school. Not always, but sometimes. And when I look at what recruitment ultimately is, it's you're taking a role in a company and you're marketing it out to an extended candidate base in the world to get them excited to apply for the role or want to move forward with an interview. And then once you have that great candidate, you're marketing it internally to the leaders in your organization to say, I think this person's a really great fit. And why I push this is because I feel like the amount of resources given to a marketing department, whether it be for agency usage, whether it be for cost of acquisition of a customer, whether it be the importance and the visibility all the way up to the C-level, it's not what we see in terms of resources allocated in terms of the recruitment space. So I'm not sure if you've heard that before. That's something that's a core belief of mine. What do you think about that? Am I wrong? Am I off? Is that something you would tend to agree with? I wouldn't know how that would be structured, but I do have a deep belief that marketing should be a part of every part of the company. Mm. And I think one way to build brand, build culture, build trust is through having good recruitment and good HR. I think Marketing should be touching, job descriptions should be touching, because that's one of the points to show how your brand is and how you're, and marketers are usually the better copywriters and the better content people, so they should be doing that. Also, culture is the best deterrent of what great marketing is inward and outwards. And also, internal marketing is one of the, like, what I would push for is that a marketer who sits in the HR department that dotted lines to yeah. a CMO, because then there'll be resources given to that marketer to do that. And then you could probably slowly, I don't know what I struggle with is that people will then ultimately not believe in marketing because they have this thing of HR, like there's a stigmatism. So I think it's just going to be HR professionals like you and other people to start pushing the message that what HR actually is. I think it first starts with education and then it eventually it could be under the marketing department, but I think they should be a marketing team or marketing resources dedicated to help HR with employer branding, employer this, employer that, social, like all that stuff that makes companies great. Yeah, I love what you're saying. I mean, for me, really what it comes down to is we think about the cost of acquisition of a customer. I think that the cost of acquisition of an employee is just as important, if not more important in a lot of cases. And you touched on it with the job description, right? The job description should be a marketing tool that grips somebody when they read and says, ooh, I want to work at this company, or it's giving you an idea of what that company is like. 
And conversely, a resume, right? This archaic artifact that we've had for hundreds of years at this point. It's really you're marketing yourself at the end of the day, because a lot of times you won't even get past an initial HR team member or a gatekeeper if your resume isn't compelling or if it isn't capturing your information. So to your point, whether it sits in a different function or not, and believe me, like I believe in strategic HR, right? Like attracting, developing, and retaining your employee base is a bottom line advantage for companies that do it well. There's also some of the more tactical and administrative aspects of HR, like compliance and employee relations and workers' comp and things like that. So I think it's important to separate those two because I think one is very different than the other. And maybe to your point, taking more of a marketing lean or a marketing angle or having marketing assigned to your HR department will effectively help from a recruiting perspective and then all corporate communications. Yeah, I also think one thing that you said that I don't think HR does, and you can lean on HR leaders to do this, is map out the cost of acquisition. Like one, how much does it cost to bring out in a new employee? How much does it cost to retain that employee? How much does it cost to lose that employee? And then map out those costs. And then it becomes an investment that people are willing to make. I don't see HR doing that. We've heard for years in HR, like, oh, if you lose an employee, it's 200K. But nobody's ever put down the math and said, okay, this is 200K losing this certain employee, or this is this. Or also what I think it will do too, if you do start doing more, modeling out of this is also will prove that I have a belief that my problem with a lot of employers is it's not structured like sports where like the best employees should be paid like athletes and how great they are. And it shouldn't be just like the straight level of this person. I know they do it for biases and try to make everything fair, but if you're trying to create a high performance culture, you need high performance people and high performance people need to be paid relative to how performance is. Brother, you're preaching to the choir right now. So I'm going to tell a quick story. So when I first got into this business, at first I had a stigma against it myself. I started my career in technology before I realized that there was such an opportunity, market opportunity in the hiring space and that there was going to be transformation over the next 10 to 15 years. What was it going to look like? And so what I thought it was going to look like initially, and this is back in 2007 was I really thought that outsourcing of recruitment was going to be the next big step because people are going to want to pay less and get more, which you can when you outsource it, right? Then I thought that consulting was going to be the next step in terms of teaching what the best companies do to be amazing at hiring to other companies so they can implement some of those same processes and procedures. And then the last one, they're very relevant to what you just said, and this is a deep belief of mine, is that eventually we will move more to a free market when it comes to hiring of people. And what I mean by that is much like you would pay LeBron James, right? I know there's a salary cap at 40 million a year because he brings in a certain amount of playoff tickets and jersey sales and gate or Justin Bieber, you know, you pay him 5 million for a concert because he brings 10 million in ticket. The ability to look at corporate individuals and have a true ROI tied to them, hiring this person versus hiring this person is going to lead to half a million in revenue for the company. And now we pay them commensurate with that. And I really believe what that'll lead to in our industry in particular is more of an agent type concept. So rather than saying, hey, listen, we're working with this recruiting company, go find us somebody. It's, you know what? I want to work with Jackie. Who represents Jackie? Oh, MSH does? Let's engage her agent at MSH and talk to her. Not to mention, it goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning, that personal branding, that thought leadership. You know, there's different things that we all want as professionals, right? It's a lot like entertainment and athletics as it starts to move in that way. And I think as people analytics become more accurate and more robust, we'll be able to show that ROI because you're right. You should be getting, you shouldn't be in this band that says we're paying between 150 and 170 base because that's what the market says. It should be determined on your worth. And the better we can understand that and justify that, 
the more likely that outcome is. I mean, it's also like what you do with sports. Like, yes, I think for entry level, there could be bans because, okay, it creates fairness of entering the market. When you're an athlete going to the NFL, there's a cap that you can make to go to the NFL. Once you've proven yourself as an individual, as your experience, and you've proven that you've done X, Y, and Z, and you've proven that you're doing this, then you... But that's why people are job hopping now, because they know that, okay, if I stay at this place for a year, this company might pay me 10% more. This was back before the market went down, but sure. Or I can go to another company and get like a 30, 40% bump. And then the next company, I get a 40, 30% bump and I keep going. And that's how I could raise my salary. Or I could be start my own business or start a side hustle or whatever. Also what happened in marketing, I had this deep belief that the reason why marketing isn't as great as it used to be is you're not paid relatively to the risks you take. So you're not going right. to be as risky. So when what happens in marketing is, do I make this like smart decision that won't get me fired? Or do I take a big risk and help the company 10x? Oh, logically, I don't want to lose my job. So I'm going to do the safer choice. Like a stockbroker, the upside to making a bet that a stock will go 10x is way higher for that employee. I mean, the loss might be there, but way higher. So if I make this 10x decision and I can get 10x paid more, I should be able to do it. The risk and reward in marketing right now is off balance. That's inherently what capitalism is too, right? And if you look at it from general managers, they do the same thing. They're trying to keep their jobs a lot of time and they're missing out on players that could really change things. And I think the big thing here is if you think about when a football free agent in the NFL becomes a free agent and they want to talk to other teams, their agent goes in front of the other GM and says, Listen, my guy's thrown for 4,000 yards relative to the rest of the league. That's the top five percentile. He's got this type of yards per average, right? Blah, 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 blah. And now we can justify his salary being at this level. And again, we don't really have that as corporate professional. We don't have that for the VP of supply chain. We don't have that for the CMO necessarily, right? So I think as people analytics gets better and more robust, I think that'll change. And I think it's much needed. To your point, I totally agree. Like, listen, do we want to mitigate risk? Of course. But if you bring 10x back to your company and you're in marketing, right, you get a nice pat on the back and maybe a promotion in one to two years, which is not commensurate with the amount of impact that you had. And that needs to be a financial. Yeah. And or like a flat 10% bonus or 20% bonus. The risk is not there for you to make risky moves. The old saying that nobody got fired for choosing Deloitte. Oh, yeah. Or yeah, like I think it was SAP or whatever, because like the safer choice is always the better choice. But the safer choice doesn't mean it's the right choice just because you're making a logical choice. And that's the problem is like the best marking is illogical and you can make illogical decisions without risk. So start a revolution. I'm loving this. <laughs> this is a great conversation for me. I want to learn a little bit more about you because you got an interesting background. You played D1 football at Cincinnati and then I think you transferred back home to USD, correct? Mm -hmm. And they're the Toros? Toreros. Toreros. Okay. And the Aztecs are San Diego State. I didn't want to make sure I didn't mix that up. And then you weren't just a player on the team, but you were all conference at San Diego. And then I know you also had your own tech startup in college that you called Unified. I think I saw 3,000 downloads. So I want to ask you kind of a unique question here. Most people don't accomplish either of what you did with that level of success in college. Which of those two things, points in your life, more informed who you are as a professional today? That's a great question. They both did two different things for me. I think sports made me who I am today because I think 
the amount of things you have to deal with, stress level, performance, practice, it makes a normal job seem easy because it's not as hard as going to me 40 hours of playing football and trying to get good grades in school. So when I was playing at least Cincinnati, I was going to 6 a.m. left, then class, then practice, then back to class, then tutoring, and then doing it all over again in the end. And then in season, it gets even crazier. To be able to do that and stay high performance and high stress, and also what it teaches you is like mental toughness, which is a hard thing to learn without sports. Like sports teaches you to push yourself to a limit that you couldn't ever think you would do that. And I don't think most jobs can push you to that level that you do in sports. So I think sports help me with the drive that I have today. I think the startup thing just taught me that I wasn't ready. Like I needed practice, marketing practice to be a better marketer. I always have been an entrepreneur minded, but it taught me that, hey, you have to go learn from the best first to then go do your own thing. I really love that. You went to Cincinnati. Did you play under Brian Kelly or was it Butch Jones or who was that? Butch Jones. Wow. Really nice. Why'd you go back home? Was it just not the right fit? Yeah. Transparently, I think for me to play at that level, I didn't realize it at the time. Now that I think about it, when back in the day, like mental health wasn't like spoken about a lot. I thought it was a seem as weak to say that you have mental health problems. In the locker room, for sure. Right. That was a way bigger stigma. Yeah. So like. For me, I think if I had the resources to like do that, I would have probably stuck at Cincinnati. But for me, I was in my own head. I was having bad anxiety. I was like, this is not for me. And then I wasn't going to play football anymore because I was like, mentally, I can't handle it. Then I got coaching. So my biggest lesson is like, get mental health help before you need mental health help. And it's not a weakness. If I got that beforehand, I would have probably stuck with football all through, but I wasn't mentally ready to play at that level. And when you're like an 18-year-old college kid, you're moving away across country for the first time, getting injured your freshman year, which injuries mentally messes you up. It's a hard environment. So the biggest thing was that I wasn't mentally ready for it, but if I got the help that I needed, I would have probably stayed. Probably about eight to 10 years too early on it. I mean, one of the great trends recently is the destigmatization of mental health. You see it in sports, a lot of professional athletes talking about it. You certainly see it in the workplace. That might have changed everything for you. Now, I think things turned out okay, but just interesting to hear you reflect on that because I can imagine back in 2011, 2012, and being in a locker room, like you don't feel comfortable bringing this, especially when you moved across the country and you're with new teammates and new everything. I imagine that had to be tough. So, at first, my excuse was passion for the sport. I reflected back and I was like, I was not in the correct mental state to be at that point. I had bad anxiety. I suffered from anxiety from a kid, but I was taking medication, taking the things you need to stay on track was kind of looked down upon. Not showing emotions was like a big thing in football back then. So it's just, it's hard when you can't talk to anybody and you're across, you have no family, no friends, no support system where you are. So it's hard to tell people when you're like away from home, hey, I'm having mental health issues. I need someone to help me here. I try to toughen it out by myself. And that was the worst decision I made. 
also a competitive environment. So there's got to be at least some thought process to somebody else is trying to take my job. I can't show any weakness. I've got to fight through this. Yeah, I can imagine how that is. I'm glad it ended up working out the way you did. You went back to San Diego. You now live in Austin. I love Austin. One of my favorite cities. I love San Diego. Probably going to retire there at some point. What do you love about Austin? Why did you end up moving there? So I lived in San Diego. Then I moved to LA. And when I was in LA, It was a great startup environment, worked for some great companies there. But when COVID hit, LA changed a little bit for me. When you work from home, like I've always been traveling on steady mindset. And it was like the first time I, me and my now wife were like, okay, let's just try something new. And Austin was a city where it was young. There was a lot of young professionals here. We both liked it when we wanted to move. There's a lot of events that happen here, like marketing stuff. And also, no taxes doesn't hurt either. So, as a Florida guy, I know all about that. I can say taxes didn't play a part, and that's a taxes did play a part in. But all of those factors. Also, we were just over LA. Like we were both California people who've been in California all our lives, and we just needed to create our own lives somewhere else. And Austin was the best place to do that for us for now. All right, top food spot in Austin. If you're telling somebody who's visiting. It depends for what, but Terry Black's for barbecue. Went there two months ago. So good. Unbelievable. Veracruz with tacos. Veracruz is the best. There's some upscale places like HTX Casino for like upscale Mexicans. Pretty good. What I like about Austin, it's a very fast, casual type place. So there's a lot of the restaurants are just like great Tex-Mex, great fast food. Not fast food, meaning like great, like chill spots. It's on like high-end restaurants that there's not many high-end great restaurants here, but the mid-level restaurants are all good. Oh, really good. And also best brisket breakfast tacos in the world. Oh, no yeah. question about that. Breakfast tacos, barbecue, Tex-Mex, you can beat Austin on. The one thing we, I don't like is there's not that many good sushi spots, but that's okay. Yeah, definitely going to find more of those in LA, but I'm a big Mexican food guy. So I'll trade the tacos for the sushi any day of the week. All right. Last question before we jump into the hiring questions. You worked at numerous companies, including really big ones like Qualcomm and Oracle, startups like Chow Now, Clearbit, and Snack Nation. When I ask you to look back throughout your career at all the companies you've worked at and the culture that most fit you, Daniel, which one comes to mind when I ask that question? Snack Nation. The reason for that is I thrive in like a fast-paced environment. I thrive in a place where there's a bunch of people who have the same mentality as me, where like stagnation, everybody in the marketing team were just hustlers, grinders. We got things done. That works for me. Big companies do not work for me. And I, I'm glad I realized that. I had to try it out, but I'm more of a fast-paced marketer. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. So let's talk about hiring because that's what we're passionate here about MSH and on higher learning. I want to ask you a little bit about, you've been involved with, you know, hundreds of hires throughout your career, done a lot of interviewing. If you had an overall hiring philosophy for the type of people that you want to bring onto your team, anything come to mind when I ask you that? Yeah. I hire attitude over scale. Okay. I think you could teach skill, especially for like people who just get in marketing. I think like marketing, you can learn. 
I think you can teach those soft skills. I choose soft skills over hard skills a lot of the time. There are obviously specific roles like in marketing you need that. But what I've learned from people who I've interviewed that are very great at their role is a lot of the time they have a stuck in their own way mentality that you can't change. And that's one of the things I don't like in marketing is that there's not one way to do things in marketing. And it's also, we've always done this way. Attitude doesn't work because things change so much. And a lot of the times I've done that. So the first thing I look for is, will this person like fit culture, vibe? Are they a great person to work with? That's the first thing I look for. And then obviously I'll look for, do they know at least enough to get the role done? I love that. Be specific. What soft skill is most important to be able to work with you or to be managed by you? Consistency. I think the ability to show up every day. I think that people mistake what consistency mean. I think too many people think that consistency, I'm going to go to a football analogy, is like I play in the offensive line. If I was playing with someone next to me, I just want to know that they could do their job and I don't have to worry about them. They'll show up every day and give me a B-plus performance and I'm cool with it. The people that I don't like is one day they come in and they're an A, and then the next day they come in and they're D, then they're a C, and then they're an A, 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 C. It's hard to work with someone where you don't know what they're going to deliver to you. So consistency. I totally agree with you. I mean, if I'm looking at it from like a superstar perspective, they're going to give you 120% consistently all the time. 80% consistently all the time is really, really good. What's tough for the people around you is high volatility. The days of 150 then to 20, and then that leads to uncertainty. That leads to lack of security and safety. That leads to not knowing what you're going to get. And that becomes that 80-20 rule, right? When you spend 80% of your time thinking about 20% of the people. And so totally with you on that. I love that. I haven't gotten that answer before. So I really, really like that. Do you have a favorite question that you like to ask in an interview? What's a mistake in marketing that they made and what did they learn from it? And also how do they end up fixing the mistake? Because I think... I want a marketer to make mistakes. Like I want to know that they make mistakes because that means they're like, they're trying new things, they're failing. But also I want them to know that they learn from that mistake. And I think that's the best type of markers. I don't care in marketing if you make mistakes. I care like you don't make the same mistake and you take the learning from that mistake and do it again. So what is the biggest mistake you've made in marketing and what do you learn? I really like that. We always have to know how you handle adversity, how you bounce back. We all make mistakes which is a perfect segue into my next question. When you do make a mistake on somebody you've hired, and we've all done it, is there a theme that you can look back on that you're like, "Mm, I wish I would have dug in deeper here, or I wish I wouldn't have assumed this? Any type of theme when you miss on somebody, what happened? Yes. One of the themes I think is over-relying on where they worked before. Oh, this person came from this company, so I assume that they crushed it at this company because they came from such a great organization that I assume that they did that. Like, it's hard to get things out of people. That's why I'd say the first interview, I don't even talk about the role with the person. I just want to know, does this person vibe with the team? Will they be a good culture fit? Will they be great to work with? Do they care about what they do? And then I can go into like deeper questions. That's where the panel will come in to just like, this person can drill them on this. This person could drill them on this. But I first want to know, are they great? I've leaned on the opposite before, and that screwed me a lot of the times. It's like, oh, this person worked at this company. I assume that they're great. And it's come to eat me a couple of times. I think I've made pretty good hires because I've leaned on. Also, I think 
leaning on intuition. Sometimes people don't trust their gut when it comes to hiring. And I think there's a feel to a lot of hiring. And it's like, you know, this person's going to be great for the team. Just like with a vibe that they bring, who they are. When I led too much on what we talked about before, data, which is the resume, things that they said, because I've been on the other side of the resume. I can ace any interview because I could just take what the hiring manager put in the job description and I could give every one of my answers to tailor to what they put because I know they wrote that. So that's how you can win an interview. But I could not know anything about the role. Interviewing is an absolute skill and some people are really good at it and some people are really good at what they do or not very good at it. And that's why it can be tough to really hire from a meritocratic perspective because people have different resumes, people have different interviewing styles. Going back to making assumptions on people you hire from certain companies, we do that with education too, right? Oh, they went to Harvard. I went to Yale. They went to Northwestern. They must be great. Some of the best, smartest people I know went to UCSD and University of Arizona, right? That's a great point. I don't think I've looked at people's education anymore. I don't care if they went to college, especially in marketing. I just care, like, have great soft skills and have they learned by themselves? Have they dominated in the role that they've done before? And can they prove that they've done that? After your first job, that doesn't matter anymore, like where you went to school. It sucks totally to agree. say, but after your first job, it really doesn't matter where you went to school. It really doesn't. Some of the best people that I've hired are people that had two jobs and went to Florida International University versus some of the dumbest people I've known have graduated from some of the Ivy League schools. So I think education is what it is. It's a nice head start but it certainly doesn't say everything about you, bad or good. People don't use the education the right way. I think if you go to Harvard, like your kid should be just grinding on networking with all those people because it's the power of proximity with Harvard. You're around people who have probably have influential people like that they know and they know. So it's like being with the power of proximity there and being around great people like that. I think people mistake it and say like it's an education place is really a place to harness the power of proximity. It's your network exposure. You're around some of the best and brightest people, right? Just because of the academic standards they have and then the professors that are there. So to your point, it's not necessarily what you did on your final. It's who are the people you're building relationships with and how are you taking advantage of that? I know you know the importance of that. I think it's a great point. Yeah, I think you can do that after school too. I don't think you can, but I think like it gives you a good head start I've known people who went to good schools and the ones that have done well going to good schools. I also know people who didn't go to good schools, but the ones that done well, the good schools are like, oh, my friend's dad did this, or my friend knows this person. And that's how the world works. It sucks to say, but like they use the network ability to build a network in college to be able to be who they are today. Fundamentally, life is about being given certain tools. And then how do you take advantage of those tools, right? And we're all trying to do that. I love that. I'm going to come back to the degree in a minute because that's one of the LinkedIn posts. I want to ask you this real quickly, though. Do you have a memorable interview experience? Either you were interviewing somebody or you were in an interview, something that stands out to you, bad or good. You don't got to name names. There's no specific that comes to mind, but I do think that a lot of companies, and this is where it comes down to marketing. I think a big mistake a lot of companies make is they overpromise up front and the delivery of the role is not what they say it is. So there is a company that I got sold on like a great experience. I probed the questions. And then when I went there, it was nothing like what they said. That is probably one of the worst things. I think the best thing that I've learned as an interviewer to do is be transparent on what the hard things are and what the great things are, because like, I want them to come in the environment and be like, oh yeah, you told me this in the interview. 
even if like there's bad processes, I'll be like, the process are not that good, but we're working on that. You'll be a part to help improve this process. I'm going to be upfront with you. It's not that great. Like if that's a deterring factor for you to be in this role, I don't want them to come in and hate the role. They have to want to be in this type of company. And I think a lot of people sell a dream to get a candidate instead of being transparent of what the company is. Totally agree. It's the devil you know. These companies are doing a disservice, not just to the candidate, but to themselves. Because what ends up happening is the person takes the job, they're there for two weeks, and they're like, oh shit, this isn't what I signed up for. And now, in a lot of cases, not as much anymore, but they used to say, well, I got to be here at least a year or two years, otherwise it's going to look bad on my resume. Now, we're a little bit more apt to say, well, you know what, if this isn't what I thought it was, then I'm going to take that next call and I'm going to get where I want to go. So I think that's one positive development of a little bit more of the transients. But to your point, you got to create a realistic job preview. And to your point, it's got to be transparent and it's got to be, you know what you're walking into. You don't want to put lipstick on a pig. This isn't a competition to sell people. It's to help find fits. It's like puzzle pieces at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. That's why I think like interviewing to me is just having conversations. I've also had companies that were so rigid with like, when I was the hiring manager, they gave me the questions. They didn't let me go out of the questions and I had to fill out exactly what they wanted to do. The best hires I've made we got to feel they can answer me any questions I can ask them. If we like start like vibing, like at service time, I think I made all my hires I made, I would say were top tier hires because I didn't have the questions. I knew I put the right people in the panel because I got to control the interview process and let the hiring manager do that. I think that's also a mistake. You don't let the hiring manager help with that process to make them find the best fit. I totally agree with you. I mean, not to plug anything here, but the software that we've built is made specifically for the hiring manager instead of HR. And to your point, the requirements that you have around the position, the preferences you have around the position, our system helps pull that out and then develops questions for you to ask against that. So rather than saying, hey, here's the book and here's how we do it, it should be structured. It should be collaborative, but it should be based on your wants and desires as the hiring manager. Ultimately, you're the one on the line for making a good or bad hire. And so what you want and what you think is important is really important. And you talked a little bit about that gut earlier. I totally agree with you. The one thing I ask people to do is codify that gut. Why does it feel good? What experience did you have that you've seen before? What answer really resonated with you? And if you can get to that and ask why, 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 then you can really systematize that as you go forward and say, this is why I trust my gut because I'm looking at X, Y, and Z. 50% of the interview when I put in the panel was when I wanted the Panelists that looked for were just soft skills, weren't even hard skills. And then I had one person who knew that role great to give, like, does this person know their crap questions? And then another person to say, do you think this person could be great long-term, like leadership potential? I structured the interview. Every panel was like, okay, this is to get this skill. This is to get this skill. Because I think also, I don't know if you agree with this, but like, Every different type of role needs a different type of process to dig into. Hiring a data analyst versus hiring an SEO manager to hire a head of demand jet. There's different skills, different soft skills you need, different like being like, say, an influencer marketing manager, you have to have like more interpersonal skills. You have to know how to talk to people. You have to know how to build relationships. But some people don't need to interact with a lot of type of people. So you look for different skills. And are they dependable? Do they adapt to change? These little things that every role has a different thing that you need to find that. I totally agree with you. It's all about structuring it, right? At the end of the day, knowing and understanding what you need out of this role, what's important and what's not. And then having people interview against that, including yourself, is really important. The only thing I would say is it should be consistent for each role. 
You can't do that for different candidates. Otherwise, it's not a good control experiment. You're getting a bunch of different variables and answers there. But yes, I agree with you. Whether it be a VP, an executive role, or whether it be a data analyst and everything in between, sometimes there might be behavioral assessments. There might be coding tests. There might be show us some of your work. That happens a lot of time in marketing, right? So there's going to be different structures depending on the function and the position. But that consistency across other candidates, I think, is super important. So, and I know you agree with that. I want to jump into this. We talked to a lot of VP, C-level founders here. And when I've asked them what their typical day is like, meetings, 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 I get the sense that you're going to have a little bit of a different answer. Because listen, you're married, you got a full-time job, you're posting on LinkedIn, you got the pod. Like, walk us through what a typical day looks like for you. Because I know you're pretty regimented and sound like you're pretty disciplined. I actually optimize for the least amount of meetings possible. Unless like it, it needs to be a meeting, it's not a meeting. So I'm not in meetings all day. Like it starts off every morning is my LinkedIn because I set that habit that, okay, I have to post every single day in the morning and it's a habit and I do that. So I start off there. So quick question real quick, inside baseball here. Do you know what it is the night before or is that something spontaneous that happens that morning? 80% of the time I know. 20% okay. of the time I don't know. I keep a swipe file. So I always have a bank of things that I can post. I never run out of posts. I always have notes in my phone or things. I don't worry about that. I won't have anything to post. Love that. And then I structure what are the heaviest thing, like lefts that I need to do at the beginning of the day. Things that I know are going to take the most amount of mental energy, the most amount of thinking. And then, and then I do meetings more in the afternoon, a couple of meetings. And that includes podcasts, like podcasts I consider a meeting. Oh, really? Wow. So I'm in a meeting right now. This is amazing. Yeah. I think when you have an interruption block in focus time, even like talking to someone else, it ruins the flow of that morning. So I like to structure it more to like midday to later in the day. And then in between those, like I said, a time to go for walks and stuff like that to get mental stimulation of that. And then I usually work out after. But for me, I think the biggest thing is my days are, this is a bad way to say, but unstructured structure. I'm really big on time freedom. That's like one of my things that I'm big on. I like to be able to control my time. If I don't want to do something at a certain time, I'll work later if I need to work later. I, work. I don't have a set nine to five I'm working. My wife's like that too. We both bounce off each other. So I have like work week. I have being Mark Millennials creator. I also have a side agency that people don't really know about. It's like stealth. All three have to balance each other. So creating just happens on the weekend, all my LinkedIn posts, and then any meetings that have to do with creating go in the week. So like we're having a marketing conference at the end of the year. Those meetings swap and during the week, but like creating LinkedIn newsletters, anything happens a weekend, busy work happens during the week. So it's unstructured. I know that's what the answer people want, but if I want to go work out at 10 a.m., I'm going to work out at 10 a.m. I don't care what people say, like type of thing. And I set that expectation with everybody I talk to or every position I've gone to. Like From now on, like I have the ability to do it. Great on time. I love that. Unstructured structure. I love that answer. And here's why. It sounds like you're getting everything you need to get done. You're just doing it at the time that's right for you in that moment. Because some people, if they're unstructured, right? They're not accomplishing the things, they're not hitting their goals. That's not happening with you. It's just a matter of, it varies day to day. I'm very results driven. For me, it's like, is the task getting done? And is the task getting done on time? And am I seeing results? If I'm not seeing results, I'll change the process. But if I keep on seeing results, I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing. I'm not going to change whatever, what I'm doing, or I'll just cut back on things that are taking too much time 
and have less value to me. So I'll be like, yeah, maybe I'll not take on a client or maybe I'll not do this. I love that. All right. So let me ask you, are you working on anything right now that you're really juiced about? Get you out of bed in the morning. You're really excited about it. The Marketing Millennials is doing some cool stuff right now. We're building a community that's going to come out soon. We have our first ever marketing conference in Austin. That's going to be great. I just love creating. So I think that's good because I just inherently like helping others do that. So I think the biggest thing is that, but I think everything that I do on the side fuels that. So I wouldn't ever not do the stuff I'm doing because I think the best B2B creators have expertise outside of what they're doing. So they have to be in the game to be able to write about the game. It's kind of like the best sports reporters out there usually have played the game before to know like what the great game is. They give you more unique insights and different insights. I'm totally with yeah. you on that. So we talked about the degree thing. We usually on this show, we look at an old LinkedIn post and want to get an idea of what you were meaning when you post this. You've obviously got a lot to choose from. I went three years back. Unpopular opinion. You are in marketing. Degrees are not useful. Skills are. Show your skills, not your degree. Thoughts? I know we talked about this a little bit, but you want to reinforce anything here? Yeah, I think most jobs over-rely that you learn marketing in school. I think you can learn foundations and fundamental stuff in school, but the best markers I know learn by doing. And I think 99% of things I've learned in marketing is learning by doing. And people come at me and say, it's because of the school you went to, blah, blah, blah. No, I think school is great to set a foundation of doing things, getting in the foundation of doing things. And if you're not an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer. I don't think you need it. I think when I've developed my skills, it's came from, and this is from my perspective, which every post is. So people are like, some people are, were better of getting into a classroom. That's just not me. I'm just like a learn by do Same with football. You learn by getting on the field and practicing. You can read like a football manual and become the D1 football player. You have to actually play the sport. So I think you have to play marketing to do great marketing. I love that. So I have four kids. Their oldest is 11, eight, nine, and four. They do not listen to this podcast, unfortunately. But here's what I will say to you that I probably wouldn't tell them right now, but I will later in life. I actually am not a big believer in what we're doing from a higher education perspective, starting with the cost and what that does to you going forward. I also think that what you really take away from it, a lot of great social things I took out of my degree there are not a lot of things that I studied that are super applicable to what I do now. And that's not the case for everybody. There's different types of roles where that makes sense. I am big on apprenticeship. I am really big on going and learning your trade, seeing it, because I think one of the biggest disservices we do to these 18-year-olds that are going into college is, what are you going to be when you get older, right? Now you're in college. Now you got to pick a major to go into that. And what happens is, and I see this so much, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be an accountant. And then you actually start practicing. You're like, I don't like this at all. And you're already too far gone at that point. You're pot committed. And then you get stuck in something that you don't really have a lot of passion about is what I see. The statement means, for me, it doesn't mean don't go to college. Like, I think to be great, learn some social skills. What I'm saying is you don't need to go to Harvard to be the best marketer. You don't need that degree to become the best marketer. I'd rather someone go and learn psychology in college and then learn marketing or go learn something to do with the humans and how humans interact with each other, sociology and all that stuff, then learn marketing in college. But I also do believe that some people can't learn like that and don't need college. So there's like a balance of who are you as a person? How do you learn? How do you grow? And sometimes it's college for some people. Some people need structure. Some people need unstructured. 
And that's really what I'm saying. I think that this idea of this broad sweep of the brush that going to high school, going to college, getting this degree, and then going into the workforce, that's a path that works for a lot of people, works for me. I'm happy with the path I took. But I would also say that we should also accept that being great at anything or something a lot of times has a very circuitous route to get there. And sometimes that means a four-year college. Sometimes that means a community college. Sometimes that doesn't mean college. Sometimes that means apprenticeship. I think just there's a lot of different ways to do it. And I just think that we inform a lot of these social pressures in the world to say it has to be done this way. And my experience has been that it can be done in a bunch of different ways. I think there's a lot of value in school and a lot of it is social to what you said. But I also think that there's other paths too. I think we're saying a lot of the same thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, they did this for a reason because it's like, formulas and they did this to create the best employees for society and college used to be that that's why like government used to fund it because you put someone in a good degree the return of that is to be a great person for society but now it's like the price has gone up and the value has gone down so there's a mismatch in value to investment the government makes and also you make as an individual such a great point think about how paying back student loans that can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars now Put you behind from so many different perspectives, changes the roles you take, changes when you can first buy a house. I mean, that's all part of it. So things have changed and we'll see how they keep developing, but I think it's a good conversation. I'm glad you and I are having it. Hopefully somebody listens to this and we'll start to see some positive change in that direction going forward because I do believe in terms of higher education, we got to bring the cost down. We got to make it more affordable. I know in different countries, there's different opportunities and different schooling that don't cost an arm and a leg and don't put you behind the eight ball like this. And I think we got to figure out and search out how we can be more like some of those other schools. I think that would be for the best for everybody because hundreds of thousands of school debt is not putting anybody and setting up anybody for success. I think that's for sure. Last question, Daniel. If you had one bit of career advice that you know now that maybe you did not have at the beginning of your career that maybe for our early and career listeners who are listening right now, what would that be? There's two. One, I wish I knew that I should learn understanding people and why they make decisions and why they do things. It also helps with your personal relationships, but also in your career for every profession, like learn people, so psychology and because people are inherently wired in something. And two, I think the dream or the thing that you set in your head is like a limitation. Say, I want to get this job and you keep striving for it, you can do it if you just believe that you could do something. And I think there's a whole thing of most people are setting their goals like way too low or have the mindset that this is all that they can achieve. I think it's because they don't know there's more paths to achieving what they want to achieve in this world. So I think becoming a creator, for example, I didn't know it will help me create more freedom in my life. I did not know that because I never was exposed to that. Now that I think about it, it goes down to the point, like just try a bunch of things when you start. Just try a bunch of things, fail at a bunch of things because you never know. I love that. I love that. All right, let's plug a couple of things. So you've talked about this conference a little bit. Do you have dates and everything ready to go? It's not live yet, but October 18th in Austin, that's when it's going to be. I'll let you know <laughs> the late goes live, but October 18th. Jackie, we going? We're going to get some barbecue. We're going to get some brisket tacos. All right. I know Jackie's a big fan. She's, a, she's our brand marketing manager here. So we'll probably be at that conference. Your podcast, Marketing Millennials, can find that everywhere. Spotify, Apple Music, I assume. Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere you get your podcasts. Yeah. And follow my guy, Daniel, on LinkedIn. I really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with me. I think we learned a lot about you today. A lot of great marketing advice. A lot of good life advice. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. All right, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.